0: Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In education, we talk a lot about the racial achievement gap and how to close it. But those discussions tend to focus on the latest indicators or interventions, often without much historical context. In her new book, though, Dreamtown, Shaker Heights in the Quest for Racial Equity, today's guest, Laura Meckler, takes a different tack. In Dreamtown, Laura examines the hundred-year history of Shaker Heights, the well-to-do, socially progressive Cleveland suburb, from its founding as a wealthy and white enclave of privilege through integration, busing, and more recently, detracking. Different readers will take different things away from the book, but I think most will walk away from Dreamtown with an increased appreciation for just how tricky closing the achievement gap can be, even when our intentions are in the right place. Laura Meckler is a national education writer for The Washington Post, and her last appearance on The Report Card was in December. Laura Meckler, welcome back to The Report Card. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Laura, you have a new book out, Dreamtown, Shaker Heights and the Quest for Racial Equity. I'm going to ask for the quick lightning round version. What is this book about?
1: Well, it's about the place I grew up, Shaker Heights, which is a suburb of Cleveland, inner ring suburb of Cleveland. And it's really about its long-term and very interesting relationship with issues of race. This is a place that was founded as a elite upper crust suburb, essentially a place for escape for wealthy Clevelanders. It evolved into becoming a real integration, racial integration pioneer, first in housing and then in schools. And then in more recent years, this is a place that's really grappled with questions of racial equity and whether black students um, in the school system are being served as well as, as white students are.
0: And of course, this is right in your backyard, both because you grew up there and because you're a reporter on education issues for The Washington Post. So this fits your background.
1: Yes, I exactly. Two of the reasons why I felt like I was the right person to write this
0: book. All right. So right out of the gate. Great title. I like the title Dreamtown again. And I like it because there's two American dreams playing out in this title. So expound a little bit. Why do you think Dreamtown is a good title for this book? In 1960,
1: Shaker Heights was the wealthiest city in America. And that prompted Cosmopolitan Magazine to do a feature. The headline on the cover was The Good Life in Shaker Heights, and it really described a place of suburban opulence. It was a little over the top, to be fair. It was way more than was probably true, but the overall tone probably rang true to people who were familiar and who lived in Shaker Heights. And one of the lines in that piece was This is the story of an American dreamtown come true. And I thought about that, this idea of Shaker as a dreamtown. And then Just a few months after that, the same year, 1963, is when Martin Luther King, of course, gave his famous "I Have a Dream" speech, and he was talking about a different kind of a dream. He was talking about a dream of where children of all races, black children and white children, could be living together in peace, and who could uh, people would be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin, and This is also a dream that Shaker Heights has been trying to make true and come true. So for me, it was a question of can one place dream both dreams? Can one place be the dream of Cosmo and also the dream of Dr. King?
0: And just to repeat this back, it's not just that Shaker Heights would be great if they could do both dreams. They pursued both dreams. That was the identity of the town, that we are both going to be integrated and be a place for this American Pie successful community, right?
1: Yes. And, and that would one of the ways that was expressed was through excellence of the school district. I mean, the, the schools have been very, very good for a long time. And the, absolutely, this is very much something in identity that the community embraced in both respects.
0: So, again, the Shaker Heights was in many ways a dream town, right? Uh, affluent. It had a high vision of itself. It had good schools. It was forward thinking on matters of race. Same time, Shaker Heights was plagued by some of the same problems that have plagued many towns, right? Redlining, racism, persistent achievement gap. In fact, as you near the end of the book, it's not a stretch to think that the social experiment of Shaker Heights might have failed or at least didn't live up to its aspirations. I guess my question now, how much is Dreamtown a story of an exceptional community and how much is it a story of the typical affluent American town?
1: Well, I actually don't think it's the story of the typical affluent American town at all, because Shaker Heights is a place with a lot of economic diversity, especially today. There are people who are living in poverty in Shaker, and there are people who are quite affluent. There is a wide range, and that is heavily racialized the economic gap in Shaker, and it's grown wider. So it's definitely not your typical affluent town. And in fact, that's one of the things that drew me to this story um, most was that this idea that, in most of America, you have wealthy kids being educated with wealthy kids and you have poor kids being educated with poor kids. You move into the school district, which is essentially the wealthiest one that you can afford. I think a lot of people do that. And this is a place that is has in one boat altogether a wide range, a wide economic range. So I definitely don't think the latter is the case. I think this is an exceptional story. Now for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about, but Um, The question of, you know, did it succeed or is this essentially a, a place that tried and failed, I think is an important thing to think about. And it's one that I thought about a lot when I was reporting and writing this book. You know, was this a story of a place that tried, but hey, these things are just too hard or was it something more hopeful? And I actually found myself feeling like it was something more hopeful. And for some of the reasons I just articulated, because this is a place that is still at it, that is still working on these issues when really most of the country is either indifferent to it or perhaps actively opposed.
0: So I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. And when I think about my yard in Charleston, South Carolina, I remember it as being about the size of a football field. But it is not. And if I go back there today, I'll see it very small. You have written a book about Shaker Heights, but I'm asking you to go back to that that old view. Like when you grew up there, what was growing up in Shaker Heights like?
1: So I really felt uh, both of those feelings. Now, my family was not particularly wealthy. We're middle class, middle class professionals, uh, lived in sort of one of the middle of the road neighborhoods in Shaker. There's a range of diversity. It's not all mansions, even though Cosmo sort of implied it was back in 1963. And so that was sort of my my family's experience but I had a very much was very conscious of the idea that this was an integrated community and that that was a thing that made Shaker special that this is a place that had had a voluntary school busing plan this is a place that had a very progressive housing policy and in fact it was Very plain to me, just literally right next door, the family that we grew up next to was a multiracial family. Two white parents, six kids, five of whom were adopted, four of whom were children of color, including my best friend, Betsy, who was biracial. And I remember my dad telling me when I was quite little when I asked him why Betsy was half black and half white and him explaining, quite matter-of-factly, that one of her biological parents was black and one was white. And when you grow up with that sort of exposure and ethos, it really does set your thinking and your whole sort of sense of who you are and and where you are. So I grew up with that, this idea that Shaker was sort of special when it came to race. And I also grew up feeling like enormous pride in the community itself. It's a beautiful place, tree line. We do not have yards as big anywhere near no, as big as a football true. field, certainly not my house, but beautiful yards right. and beautiful schools, historic architecture. And it's, uh, it was a planned community. So the roads is generally not a grid. It's generally um, roads curve and follow the topography of the land. They're Schools are set on ovals for the most part with concentric circles, concentric ovals around them, re- giving you a real sense of neighborhood. So all of those all of those things made feel like growing up in Shaker Heights was a special place to be.
0: And when you go back and you research a lot about Shaker Heights over the years, all the way back to when you lived there and before, You, I'm sure, ran into some things that were great and reifying other things that might have been not so great. What surprised you the most or unnerved you while you were researching this book?
1: That's absolutely true. There's no question that all of that happened. Uh, I... I was certainly aware of the fact when I was in high school that my upper level classes were disproportionately white. And I remember thinking about it and asking about it. But I also sort of felt like, well, this is a great school. Everyone's getting a good education. I don't really know what's going on here. There were some, some explanations slash excuses made for this at the time. But it didn't really dampen my overall view. When I went back as a reporter, I got a much deeper understanding of these issues. Number one, I came to understand how this was called the level system, which a, a form of tracking, which began began until recently very young, formally in the fifth grade. Was had been criticized for a very long time. I was really surprised at how far back that criticism went. First, I found in 1980, a very, very harsh critique from the Urban League that went through the numbers and the disproportionate placement of students with white students into upper level classes and black students in lower level classes. um, It's sort of a a full-on takedown, which the district responded by defending the level system. But Even more surprising than that for me was I was doing some research in the high school basement and going through documents, and at the back of a box on an unrelated topic, I found this academic paper that was written by a graduate of Shaker Heights High School who was now at Harvard. He wrote this for a class. And it was essentially a wholesale takedown of the leveling system and of the counselors um, at the high school. It said that the level system was not designed this way, but has evolved into a racist system. I quoted an assistant principal as saying it was our biggest problem. And the thing that made my jaw drop open was that this paper was written in 1969 1969. He's talking about this having evolved into a racist system. That's more than 50 years ago. So we're talking about these problems have been known for a long time. The second thing I wanted to mention is that I knew I would find students and parents with stories of having run into implicit bias in the school district. I mean, you know, how could they, how could we not? But I was surprised by how many. When you start talking to black graduates, students, and parents about their experience in the schools, even in a place that's embracing diversity, embracing integration, virtually every single person had at least one story of some sort of assumptions being made, of sometimes they were light and kind of almost amusing. In other cases, they were quite serious. I can give a couple examples of that, if you like. One, um, a lighter example, a kid was in taking summer school for typing. A black student, and he's in the high school for his typing class. An assistant principal comes up to him and says, "Hey, listen, don't worry about that class from last semester. You're going to make it up. You're going to be fine. You're going to be right back on track." He's like, uh, "I'm here for him typing, so I don't need that speech." And it was just this assumption made that he had failed a class. Right. Uh, more, even more serious. I talked to this was something I personally observed. So much more recently, I was in a. Class, an English class, eleventh grade English class that, that had both sort of regular level and honors level kids in it. There was this one girl who was just so articulate and had so many interesting things to say in the discussion. She was black, and I was listening to her. And afterwards, I followed out, followed her out of the room and was talking to her about her experience. And I said, "You know, did you ever consider advanced placement English? Because, well, of course, there's she was in honors. Nothing wrong with honors. Sure. It's great, but why was she? Why was this kid not an AP?" She said, Well, I went to AP for one day and I looked around. I didn't see any other minority students. And I just really wondered if this was the place for me. So I went and talked to my counselor and she said I could move to honors if I wanted. So that story illustrates sort of both one, you know, how lonely she felt and how many people have told me those stories of loneliness, and two, why. You know, I had to wonder, why did that counselor not say, you know what, I think you can do it, and we're going to get you some supports, and we're going to help you make the, make this happen. We're going to find a, a friend who's in this class with you, and you're going to do this together, and we're going to make this happen for you. Instead, she just said she could go down to honors.
0: So I think you use the word belonging a lot in the book as a way to get at this. Is that the common thread through a lot of these experiences, this lack of belonging?
1: Yeah, I mean, there was a mix. There are a lot of black students who have very good overall experiences sure. with Shaker, but um, and you know, many come back and raise their own kids there, but um, also have this mixed experience that that was in sometimes somewhat damaging for them. Um, yeah, I think belonging is a really important, a really important concept. and it can be reflected in all sorts of ways. And you know, sometimes it's not just students, sometimes it's parents. You know, are these, you know, there's a lot of criticism when parents don't show up at say, the PTA meeting or they don't show up for the back to school night. But also, we need to think about, like, what do those rooms feel like? Is this a place that you feel like when you walk in that you belong? Or does it feel like you walk in the door and everybody is really different from you and you're feeling really apart and like this isn't your space? So it's something that I think is really worth some serious thought.
0: So this is a book in which you tell a hundred-year story. This isn't just like, here's what happened over this recent past. And we often hear about things like redlining, integration, busing, detracking, But typically, we look at them more or less in some kind of isolated framework rather than successive developments in a story. What, like, do you think this 100-year narrative approach sheds on these developments in Shaker Heights?
1: Uh, you know, I love that question because it really does get at why I wanted to tell this story this way. I, you know, there are debates going on, say, in the schools right now about various things. And it feels so white hot at the moment. And I, I tend to take a little step back and say, like, you know, when you look at this in the long stretch of history, you know, these things have a way sometimes of working themselves out. I think it's really important to understand what happened with the Really innovative work on housing integration and then school integration. You have to understand how this community was founded as this really elite and over, overtly racist place where black people could not get in. They were drummed out if they tried.
0: So tell us a little bit about those early years. I mean, Shaker Heights, how did it rise out of the, you know, whatever, the prairie or whatever?
1: <laughs> it is? Yes, this was, it's an ring suburb of Cleveland, but at the time of its founding, it was the Sticks, you know, where this was a place that was kind of far from downtown. The, it was founded by this pair of uh, this brothers, the Van Swerigen brothers, they, two of the oddest people I've ever re- read about, to be honest. They were extremely antisocial, wanted no publicity, didn't show up to their own events, had like a seven-bedroom mansion, and they shared a bedroom with their single twin beds next to each other. They were just very, very close to one another and also just f- very um, insular. They grew up in poverty, but they created this community. And in fact, Sort of through this, this creative financing, we're able to develop Shaker Heights into this model um, garden suburb of everything being, you know, just so. These standards for the architects and for the housing were Exacting. So, if you read the booklets that show what you had to, the rules you had to abide by, only certain types of houses were allowed, like tutors and French and uh, French colonials, French country. These were just the certain types of houses that were available. They could no one-story homes. They all had to be two stories. No porches in the front. They all had to have the garages that matched, architecturally matched the houses. You weren't allowed to have. Uh, zinc in the windows, in the the lighting of the windows. There were just color, only certain color schemes. It was so this just, is
0: a planned community. Before it's, planned community, it's a
1: were... planned community, and it is there are restrictions on all the deeds about exactly how things need to be. Very little, no industry, very few commercial areas. It was meant to feel like you weren't just living near a park, but in a park. You know, with these these lawns and such. Anyway, in terms of vis-a-vis race there it was made very clear, you know, who and who wasn't allowed. It was only for the right sort of people, as they said. When a black doctor and his wife, very accomplished people, by any stretch of the imagination today, everyone would agree that they were incredibly accomplished. They bought a house in Shaker Heights in 1925. And the response was a huge meeting at the high school to figure out how we can stop this from happening. And then there was a big effort after that to have Covenants added to the deeds that would give the Van Swergen company veto power over any sale that could be only overrode with a vote of your neighbors. So if you you know, to buy a house you needed the permission of this company or of your of your neighbors. The um that family, the Baileys, were ultimately driven out of the community. This was a place that was setting itself up as only for certain people. There were also you know it was difficult for Jewish people and Catholics to get in as well. It was meant to be very you know sort of waspy but um it was especially hard for black families. you know there are a lot of stories of Jewish families who were able to get in wealthy Jewish families in the in the beginning right. but but black families now passing
0: are. for some but not for black families yes um but eventually shaker Heights turned the page on that and really began to integrate. Um, describe that integration and the progression of it.
1: So. The, there were a few black families that managed to buy property, buy lots in a neighborhood called Ludlow, which was right up against the city of Cleveland. In fact, the first homes were actually in the city of Cleveland, but in the Shaker Heights school system. There's a swath of land that is in the schools, in the school system. And they got in through very creative ways. One, the very first family, it was a land swap with a friend of his, so nobody knew about it. There were all sorts of subterfuge to get this transaction under the radar of the sort of racial property police who were very active in keeping white neighborhoods white. And once they got in there, initially it looked like the reaction might be kind of similar to what we saw in 1925. In fact, one family's um, garage while the house was being built was firebombed, and there was a lot of suspicion that it related to race. But rather than the community rallying to figure out how to keep people out, this neighborhood responded in, in a different way. There were white families who were just, you know, horrified by what they had seen. The day that there were crews out there cleaning up the debris from this this bombing, there were white families, neighbors, who showed up with coffee and with cookies. And I'm sure the coffee and the cookies were nice, but what really mattered was the statement that yeah. they were making. Showing up. Showing up. They ended That ended up morphing into block clubs where people just did the radical thing of getting to know one another. And then that all... And, but yet, all through this early period, these early years, we start to see white flight we start to see there's this this neighborhood is now open as it was referred to black families could get in suddenly and then once that happened the real estate industry and the banking industry did what it could to essentially move towards a full resegregation there was what's called blockbusting where you call white families and you scare them into selling you better sell now your property's not going to be worth anything in a few months um White families who would try to buy in this neighborhood were told that they couldn't get financing because now it was a risky neighborhood. And the neighborhood fought back against this in sort of a remarkable way, which is part of the reason why this long history is very much worth telling, is that they got together and they decided, you know, we don't want this. We want to stay in this neighborhood. We want to live in this integrated living where we like our neighbors And they formed essentially their own little housing office where they um, had parties, house hunting parties. They showed white families houses in the neighborhood. They even had a little financing arm where they offered some additional financing uh, to white families moving in. They advertised. They, in national publications and the Cleveland Orchestra program, they talked to recruiters for big companies in Cleveland, hey, send your people to, to Ludlow. So there was, they, they advertised themselves as an integrated community for people who were interested in that. There was an irony here is that part of recruiting white people was discouraging black people because that's sort of the, the natural pattern that was happening on its own. So even some of the black people who were living there painfully were discouraging their friends and family from joining that neighborhood, asking them to go to other, move into other neighborhoods instead, because they were trying to keep this racial balance. And then that ethos, that then those policies and techniques spread to other neighborhoods in the city.
0: But that challenge to keep. One or two neighborhoods as integrated makes it much harder if there's not a bunch of other neighborhoods that are integrating at the same time because there's only so many places to go. Am I getting this right?
1: Absolutely. And that was actually one of their main challenges was that they – there was all this demand from the black middle class coming out of the city of Cleveland, and there were not not that many destinations that were welcoming. Shaker was, and the neighboring suburb of Cleveland Heights was, and that was pretty much it. And in fact, the, there was a study done by a church called St. Anne's around this time, where they had um, you know pairs, white and black people, looking house hunting, and. Th- The black families were all steered to Shaker and Cleveland Heights, even ones who said they didn't want those neighborhoods. And the white families were steered away. So the, the system was working to make it this way, to push towards white flight. So actually, since you mentioned this, that the cities of Cleveland, of Shaker Heights and Cleveland Heights and University Heights, the three that were most affected, did something truly remarkable, which is they formed an office to try to out in the further out suburbs to try to actually attract black families to those suburbs. There were very few black people <laughs> living out there. So you had one suburb funding a housing office to track people to move to another, to suburb, another suburb to you that. know whether that suburb wanted to be integrated or not and they 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 did something like they would occasionally like give one, a local official in one of these outer suburbs like an award like a, a humanitarian award or a diversity award you know, and then they would tell like black newspapers about this award. So it would seem like this is a good place to move. Somebody referred to that as good mouthing the place, like spread the word. This is a place to go. So, I I mean, I thought that that initiative was just absolutely just astounding. And that lasted
0: for a while. Interesting. So there's another element to integration here that gets discussed, but maybe less often, namely integration by race sometimes seems to be at odds with integration by socioeconomic status. That is, it's hard to maintain a community that is both racially diverse and socioeconomically diverse. Can you talk about how that tension played out in Shaker Heights?
1: Yeah, and it's still playing out. I mean, the white community in Shaker has always been wealthier than the black community in Shaker. In 1989, which is the first year I was able to find census data that includes both race and income, the median income of black families in Shaker was about 65 percent of the median income of white families. So there was a gap. But over 30 years later, by 2020, that gap had grown much wider. The white median income had risen slightly and the black median income had fallen. So it was now 35% of white median income. So now we have both racial diversity and economic diversity in the community, and it's heavily racialized. So- that presents more challenges, certainly for the schools, because as we know, when kids don't have the same resources at home, they show up for school less ready to learn than kids who are, you know, getting have family who can pay for tutors or in science camp and everything else.
0: And just to give us the lay of the land on Shaker Heights as far as the particulars, I mean, how many people are we talking about here? We're not talking about a a neighborhood. We're talking about you know, it's like, like thirty thousand, yeah, uh, almost 000 thirty thousand people. Okay. people. Yeah, right. So, and how many schools are in Shaker Heights?
1: So today there are five elementary schools. There's a upper elementary, a middle, and high school.
0: Okay, so this is a good sized community. It's not. It's uh, not it's
1: tiny, but size. it's not exactly the city of Cleveland. You know, it's a suburb. It's a maybe a mid mid range sized suburb.
0: Okay, so the first third or so of Dreamtown is mainly about land and property and who lives where. But then you get to this point where Shaker Heights is integrating in terms of who lives there, and the focus shifts to education and integrating the schoolhouse. So when Black families first started moving to Shaker Heights, what was education like in the town?
1: You know, education was great. I mean, it was a very, it was always known as a school district that had, you know, some um, celebrated excellence for a long time. The motto has been a community is known by the schools it keeps. They raise their taxes on a regular basis to support the schools. It has one of the highest tax rates in the area, maybe in the state, um, in terms of supporting property taxes for the schools. So it is a place that has always celebrated um, education and I mean, it's, and that's why a lot of people wanted to move there of both races. That's why people are drawn to the community largely is for the schools. So when the per- first black families moved in, though, there was already though the beginnings of this sort of assumptions being made about what their levels were, what their abilities were that were not necessarily based in reality. There, if somebody came, had been educated, say, kindergarten first and second in the city of Cleveland. Now they were showing up for third grade in Shaker. There was an assumption made that they were not, that they were going to be behind.
0: And these levels, you basically mean a tracking system.
1: Yes. So there was a tracking system that really until recently was four. I mean, there's always like reading groups and things like that, but kids are in the same class together. But starting in fifth grade, so it's pretty young for tracking. They were kids were divided into enriched math and enriched English language arts or regular. And the kids who were enriched were taken out of the of the class and brought into the basement for these special classes. And this was not just a small group of kids. This is about half the kids. Right. So we're talking about a, a pretty significant um, division of kids, very young. And, you know, it was also really sends a message to kids when you start doing that and you and kids get this message it's just like these are the smart kids and like you guys are the not smart kids right so even if it's not said in so many words i think those messages are sent and the thing about that's pernicious about this dividing kids up or tracking or leveling whatever you want to call it is that theoretically you can change tracks but in practice it just doesn't really happen very often. Once you get on the advanced or the enriched track, that's pretty much where you stay and vice versa.
0: So aside from the tracking, at some point, Shaker Heights got into busing for integration, right? What was the process of bringing busing to Shaker Heights?
1: Yeah, this is, I think, a really another really remarkable story. So it was Nineteen late nineteen sixties when a new superintendent, Jack Lawson, arrived and he didn't have any particular background with race. He's a white guy, came from Massachusetts. But he really saw this as an as something that they needed to take on. The first thing he did was balance the two junior highs, changed the boundary lines to racially balance the two schools, and then he took a look at the elementaries. There were nine elementary schools at the time. One of them was in one neighborhood where really the integration efforts never really worked. There was a rapid white flight in this particular neighborhood. The school there was, I think, 88% black. And his idea was that we were going to bust the kids from that school out to the Majority white schools. Since 1969, 1970, when he pr- presents this plan, of course, Brown versus Board of Education is 15 years old. The conversation about busing is, you know, very much in the air. Right. But there's not a court order, or there's not even a lawsuit, or even any external pressure it's on Shaker to do this initiative. It's right? his initiative. Okay. Now. And he, and he presents this and champions this plan. He was going to turn this school into this special services school where they'd have all sorts of extra stuff that people would rotate through on. But the, the interesting thing to me about this whole thing was that the black families living in this neighborhood were furious at the idea of a one-way busing plan. They were like, the other, the white schools are just as segregated as our school. So why are we the only ones who have to be bused? And that that argument, frankly, didn't seem to really make a big difference with him, even though I give this guy a huge amount of credit for championing this. But then something – and he was ready to just go ahead with this one-way program, I think partly because he really wanted this special services school at the the school called Moreland. But then what happened was really interesting. White families – Took up this cause and they said, you know, this isn't fair to have it be one way. We support two way busing. And furthermore, we volunteer our own kids to be bused into Moreland. And the petition went around, it was submitted, and, and then the plan changed. And it became a two way busing plan, voluntary in both directions. So no one was required to participate. And that plan was, you know, tweaked and modified. And there were magnet programs created to draw incentives. And that, that persisted for, you know, almost two decades.
0: Uh, This is a pretty significant departure from what we're used to thinking about busing, right? Judicial decree, maybe a superintendent, but what you're describing is a community saying, actually, we should do it this way. We're going to sign a petition and then we're going to volunteer our kids. How many kids were involved in this busing program?
1: A few hundred kids were involved. I mean, one of the challenges they had was there was sort of kind of a new shiny thing in the beginning, and then numbers started to fall a little bit. So they had to come up with new initiatives, like these magnet schools to try to draw kids. And ultimately, the way they solved this problem, even though they were always supportive of it, but it was voluntary, and it did require volunteers. and And in fact, as we're getting into the 80s, a lot of these, there's nine elementary schools, and about half of them are really not racially balanced. And they're um, they're skewed one way or the other. And then in 1987, the district realized they needed to close some schools for just demographic enrollment reasons. And they closed four of the nine schools and then they redrew the boundary lines. So the remaining five were all racially balanced. So and that's how it is to this day.
0: So we want to get more into the integration that went on in Shaker Heights, but we the report card, and we have a section called "Grade It." And this is we, the part
1: that scares me. This
0: is the part where we ask you for your grades. Are you ready?
1: Am I going to be grading you and your uh, questions? No, we okay. don't. We don't. We, we don't get do to assign the. Oh, you you, the, you pick the, the topics. Subjects. All right. right. Okay.
0: All right. First topic: being an education reporter that writes for a general audience.
1: Hey. I mean, that's a great it's a great job. It's a wonderful opportunity. I've covered a lot of different topics um, over the course of my career, a lot of domestic policy areas, immigration and healthcare in particular. And I also covered politics for a long time, mostly at the Wall Street Journal, covered the White House for four years and three presidential campaigns. So I've done a lot of other stuff in my career. But um, I really like this beat because I think it's a, a window to so much of what our country thinks about and cares about. And um, so much of our national conversation takes place through the lens of schools. I think we can see that with both what's happened with COVID as well as what's happening with the, the culture war stuff going on. So, um, yeah, and and I wouldn't, I mean, writing for a general audience is sort of what I do. I, I'm The trade publication people are so valuable. I read their stuff, but I like writing for, you know, writing for regular people.
0: The Pro Football Hall of Fame
1: in canton ohio where i my my first job was well can i i can give can I give a score to the pro Football Hall of Fame Festival fireworks, which I personally covered not once but twice not to brag but um and how were they and I have to say that was one very hard story to write because fireworks really are not the kind of thing you want to experience in print it's it's much more of a visual medium but fireworks I'm gonna say I, I got through it twice and I managed to write what I thought was a quasi compelling story uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame you know I used to be super into football I grew up as you know in Cleveland I was a Browns fan which is a, a good way to keep you humble um, good way to be humble in general be a Cleveland sports fan uh, after the Browns were um, viciously removed from Cleveland and sent to Baltimore and then as more information came out about CTE and all of this my um enthusiasm for football has waned. Uh but the Pro Football Hall of Fame if you're into football highly recommend it.
0: Um the internet's effect on journalism.
1: Massive. I mean I guess I'm supposed to give it a Yeah, grade. you got to
0: you got to give us a direction. A, Obviously a massive.
1: Uh You know, that's like saying, like, you know, what's the effect of, like, sunshine or rain? Like, It's just, like, part of our
0: world. These aren't always fair. (laughs)
1: Oh, okay, right. I forgot about that part. Uh, I would say that overall it's been a positive effect. Uh, I mean, there are some negative pieces. But overall, yes, we know so much more so quickly. We have ability for two-way communication. We hear from readers in a much more um, direct way. And I think that's to the good. Uh, we can do so many cool things. If you look at the Washington Post website or any big newspaper website, you'll see amazing graphical presentations of material. You'll see, you know, data journalism um, presented in really ambitious ways. You'll see beautiful things being done with photography, things that you can't do in print. All of that is good. And just the immediacy of it. I mean, you know, you know, all you need to know about like, generally what's happening in the world, just have your phone, you take a look at your alerts, you know what's happening all day long. So it's changed things. There are some negative parts to this too, for sure. But luckily, I've been really lucky, lucky to work for organizations for the last... Um, You know, nearly 20 years, first at the Wall Street Journal and now at the Washington Post are both really committed to not just the quick hits, not just the breaking news, but also really deep dives and exploring our world. So I feel like I have the best of both worlds.
0: Writing a book, you know, as opposed to writing articles.
1: You know what? I'm going to give that a big fat A. It was daunting. It was never something I thought I wanted to do, but it has been so um, fulfilling I mean, in terms of my own personal growth as a reporter, you know, going deeper into these issues, really making use of archival research and getting to write at length has been a, really a joy. It was very, very hard, but it's it's now that it's out in the world, it, you know, we're, we're nine days in as we're recording this and being able to talk with readers about it and uh, talk with you about it is just been great so it's 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 been a good experience
0: both sides ism
1: yeah i'm not a big fan both sides ism you know it's got to get like a you know like a good solid c to some extent it's necessary and i would you know you might recast both sides as being fair we need to let everybody have their say and and I don't think that's both sidesism. I I think that when you it's our responsibility to present all points of view, and and not just both but all. There are multiple points of view on any the same set of facts, and that's a big important part of what we do. But I also think that you know facts are facts, and it's our job to not give equal weight to one person who says the sky is blue and someone else who says it's purple. You know although i'm sure someone's going to say well sometimes the sky is purple <laughs> and i'm sure sometimes it is insert your own analogy here deadlines well we wouldn't function without them
0: so <laughs> but that doesn't mean you have to like them i mean you know like what them. grade do you give to, personally what do you think of deadlines
1: i think deadlines are absolutely necessary we would never get anything done you know so i'm going to give it a b because I need them and I want them. But, of course, sometimes they are annoying.
0: All right. So back to Shaker Heights. The schools in Shaker Heights do become integrated, at least if you look at student racial populations. But uh, as we talked about earlier, they continue to struggle to integrate inside the schools. White kids, black kids are in different classes, not completely, but predominantly. They form different social groups, learning outcomes, very different. Uh, What does that look like in Shaker Heights?
1: Well, until recently, it looks a lot like the way you just described it. Diverse hallways and segregated classrooms again, not completely sure, but you know way too much um and despite years of knowing about these this problem and a lot of efforts to try to address it so you know this has been a real issue I think it's been a been almost the achilles heel of the place you know this has been something that they 've Tried to tackle in various ways. Not, nothing has seemed to work. And now, then in 2020, they tried a new way, which is a, a much more um, sweeping,
0: sweeping change. More muscular change. Yes. Yeah.
1: For better or for worse, they decided to collapse the classes, the sort of the enrichment and the regular, the advanced and the regular classes, basically from fifth grade through ninth, more or less. They still have the advanced placement in the international baccalaureate, advanced classes in the high school. But underneath that, the classes were collapsed. So the students were learning together. Supposed to be at the honors level, everybody at the honors level. That's the idea, or at the enrichment level and people all being together. And that, that was instituted in the fall
0: of 2020. So do you think it's fair to say that integration within the schools was the main challenge in Shaker Heights over the last 40 years or so?
1: I would put that alongside the achievement gap. I think they go together. Right. So, but yes, I would say that that has definitely been the main challenge.
0: Um, There's a quote in your book I want to read. It's from Mark Freeman, who was superintendent for roughly 20 years. He says, I don't mean to be flippant. It, that is the achievement gap, gets discovered every five years by groups of students or sometimes adults. Every so often an article is written, a documentary, a dissertation, student work, or some committee all address this. People think they've discovered the problem or the accusation is the district is hiding this you you write, Freeman emphasizes that Shaker has achieved far more than many systems. Large numbers of black students went to college and students of all races left Shaker schools better prepared to function in a diverse world. Quote, the evidence is overwhelming that Shaker has been a leader as a school district at working at solving these issues. Asked what it would take to actually close them, he gave a fast reply, end poverty and eradicate racism. Okay, so that's a good quote and a teaser for what people can expect from uh, the book. There's a suggestion here, though, that the people in Shaker Heights repeatedly delude themselves, right? There's always some new intervention, there's enthusiasm, and then that fizzles. Five years later, it happens again. Uh, They try another intervention, forgetting what happened before, and the cycle repeats. The achievement gap does slowly shrink, but the big picture only changes so much. Do you think this suggestion that the residents of Shaker Heights are deluding themselves is correct?
1: I would not say that they're deluding themselves. No, I don't think that that's fair. I, because they've they understand that this is a problem. This is a community that talks a lot about these things. And the fact that Mark Freeman quote, where he says every so often this is discovered, this is people not deluding themselves. This is people very much engaging in these facts and, and talking about them and, and trying to figure out what they can do about them. So uh, whether they, they haven't solved the problem, you know, um, but they're, they're very aware of it. And I've actually quoted in some book talks I've given in um, other conversations, I've brought up that same quote that you read about what Mark Freeman said about the solution is to end poverty and eradicate racism. You know, it's on one on one hand, sort of like feels like an excuse, right? Like, yeah. okay, like, all right, great. Well, when's that going to happen? Sure. How about never is never good for you? You know, that's right. that's basically how that quote That's feels. a pretty good
0: doorstop, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Sort
1: of like, on the other hand, those are real issues because when you do, you know, we do see kids in poverty, kids from families with lower, um, fewer resources in their families do come in and have less success in school, not just in Shaker, but you know all across this country. So it is a real thing that has to be addressed. And this, in terms of racism, I mean, we talked about a few examples of how that perniciousness of racism has its, seeped its way in. So I do think talking about that and maybe not eradicating it, but addressing it is an important part of this puzzle as well. I mean, one thing that Shaker has done more recently is they have a family and community engagement center, and their job is to help families with life. You know various things that happen, and you know this—it sort of is a little mini version of the idea of like a community school where there's a lot of wraparound services to help families um, with other problems that they may be having, and and I think that's an, that's definitely part of the solution here. You know, I don't know to what extent or what how big it could be and how big it needs to be, or whether it would how far it would move the needle. I, I don't know those answers, but I do think that it matters because when life is on fire. You know, it's hard to do well in school. And that's just reality. So this is definitely a place that's engaged in these questions. And is this a place that has, though, despite all the best intentions and best efforts, you know, failed? You could argue that. I mean, there's a case to be made that says this is just too hard. You know, on the other hand, you look around the country and most places are not even really trying.
0: Well, what do you make about that? I mean, there is a pessimistic reading of your book. And maybe it goes as follows. You can get white and black people to live side by side. You can get white and black students to attend the same schools, even the same classes. But you can't really get them to integrate, to really live together, at least not consistently. Right. This has been a struggle of the last several decades, and it's proven more intractable than previous struggles to integrate neighborhoods or school. That's a pretty pessimistic reading. Yeah, and I don't but think, what, what do you make of that?
1: I don't think that's fully fair. Because if you talk to people who live in Shaker Heights, they will all tell you about interracial friendships that they have. And is it a perfect integration? No. But people come out of this community feeling like they've lived in a diverse world and, and, and much more than a lot of people I know who come from much more homogenous um, school systems or Cities and communities. So I do actually think that there is value to it, and and I this isn't just my opinion. That was my experience, but it isn't just that. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of alumni and a lot of parents, and it's almost a universal truth. People say that they valued this, and this is not just white people saying this. Is also black people saying this that they valued. You know, one guy says, "I know what a good corned beef sandwich tastes like now." You know, it's like sort of a joke, but that's a that's a real thing. The idea that you have lived and grown up with people who are different. Than you, and I wouldn't dismiss that. I wouldn't dismiss that. It doesn't mean that it's perfect, though. And that's the one of the themes of this book, is that this is not a black and white, pardon the pun, um, kind of 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 a work. It isn't like it's either a success or it's a failure. And the individual people are not villains and heroes. They're people who, for the most part, have good intentions and are trying to make progress and making mistakes and failing at times and maybe having successes at other times, and but sort of pushing, trying to move the ball forward. So this is a book that really lives in a muddy mil- middle and kind of shows what it looks like if you really continue to pursue this effort. Somebody, um, Matt Barnum, who interviewed me for this book from Chuckbeat, put it in a way that I thought was really good. He said, this is what it looks like, if it might look like an alternate reality, if the country had not become indifferent to the questions of integration, which is essentially what happened.
0: In the book, you spend a good deal of time discussing a relatively recent incident between a student and a teacher that seems pretty minor in the scheme of things. Can you tell us about that incident and why you chose to spend so much time on it?
1: Yes, there's a chapter about this. And this was also the subject of the 2019 Washington Post article that I wrote that led to the book. The, or at least a big part of that article, there, it was, it, in many ways, it started out as something very small, and then it became something much bigger in the community, as sometimes these things do. It was a, happened between a white teacher, a very, you know, tough teacher, but well-respected teacher, someone who a lot of people liked, some people didn't, teaching AP English in the, for two juniors, and a, one of her students, a black girl, who was, Struggling at the beginning of the year, she had had um, an assignment late, and she had been a little uh, tired in class. And one day, she comes in with doesn't have the assignment that's due, and the teacher speaks to her uh, somewhat harshly about it, and other people could hear it, and she's you know mortified by this exchange, Um, as you can imagine. uh, Doesn't take much to mortify a teenager, and this certainly would do it. Other kids could hear it, and. Fast forward a couple weeks, her mom files a complaint uh, charging that this teacher is guilty of bullying and suggesting that there's racial discrimination happening. And, you know, this whole thing really paralyzed the district. They took a long time to investigate. They put the teacher on leave, uh, paid leave, but they put her on leave, removed her from the classroom without any explanation initially to her and for a while to anybody else. And it became a real source of community tension because on one hand, there were teachers who felt like, hey, are we not allowed to have a conversation with a student about their academic work and not be accused of bullying? You know, on the other hand, it was like, well, you know, this is a district that's trying so hard to get black kids to take advanced classes. And here, here's one who is, and it's not like she's failing the class. She's just, you know, a little bit tired and has an assignment that's late why you know that sense of belonging how do you how are you going to feel like you belong when you're getting singled out and sort of barked at by the teacher in front of other people and so that was so these two things were really in tension with each other and exploded in a very public community meeting where at first the teachers were just pump it was it was a this meeting was allegedly about something else but no one wanted to talk about that and teachers were just furious about what had happened and then it sort of started shifting and then some of the black parents who were in the room were saying, well wh- wait a second what are we doing here you know are we uh, let's talk about what the underlying issues are and in fact the girl herself, the student actually jumped onto the stage and, outed herself as the person who was in the middle of all of this, said, you know, everyone's worried about the teacher's feelings. How about the student's feelings? So this was a very difficult thing for them to navigate, not one that they navigated particularly well. Mm -hmm. And it really left, uh, it was very damaging.
0: Throughout the book, you give plenty of examples of blatant racism, but it seems Like often the bigger barrier to racial progress is white self-interest. So take detracking, for instance. White parents in Shaker Heights might, in principle, want black children to get a great education, but if it means their own children get a worse education, they may be opposed. And to the extent that they are correct that detracking will mean that their own children might get a worse education, that is isn't entirely irrational behavior. And you can also look at integration. In the 1950s, some white homeowners may have been fine in principle with a black family living next door, but they still sold their homes when black families moved into the neighborhood because they worried that the value of their home might subsequently plummet. And as terrible as that sounds, to the extent that their property values might have plummeted, that wasn't entirely irrational behavior on their part. Of course, uh, these perceptions or those perceptions that property values would plummet weren't necessarily correct. They may have been driven by racism, but property values do follow perceptions. And, you know, the perception was that many people didn't want to have black neighbors. So even if you're fine with having black neighbors, if you think your neighbor might not be fine with having black neighbors, that could drive property values down. Of course, I I mean, I know we can expect to do what's right, even when it goes against someone's self-interest, but that's probably not a realistic expectation. So in the book, you talk about Shaker Heights superintendent John Lawson and Lawson's son applies to Harvard and Harvard gives Lawson sort of a choice between having his son admitted to Harvard or having a black student from Shaker Heights admitted to Harvard. Lawson very selflessly chooses the black student, and that is a noble decision. But is it a realistic one to expect most parents to make? I mean, parents try to act in the best interest of their children and in the best interest of their pocketbooks. And we shouldn't build social policy around expectations that parents will be saintly. So all that intro to ask, how much do you think the story of Shaker Heights is one of ideals butting up against self-interest?
1: Okay. There's a lot to unpack in that question. All right. First of all, as far as Lawson is concerned, he did not choose the black student. He told Harvard, this is not my choice to make. You decide. Okay. And they chose the black student. And frankly, it was outrageous that they even put that to him. <laughs> yes. uh, they said, what they said to him was, our plan is to admit this kid, this other kid. And if we do, he would be the first black student from Shaker Mid to Harvard. Or, but if you prefer, we'll admit your kid. I mean, what a incredibly ridiculous that's a
0: pretty crazy admission pretty admissions. crazy
1: thing and and it was just one example of Lawson's deep integrity that he said this is not for me to decide right. and his son tells that story with pride he did not go to harvard he and he came out just fine um so that's that's that story into the deeper thing that you're saying i'm not so quick to just say well it's all reasonable self-interest, because these things, there's perceptions, and perceptions become reality. Property values don't have to drop just because Black families move in. They only drop if there's a panic selling. So people's decisions... Lead to these outcomes. They are not. They are not inevitable, as Shaker has. The Shaker story has pro- proven is that we have not seen Shaker property values drop. It's a very desirable community throughout at various different um, levels of housing. Is, is it is a desirable community to live in, even to this day, and certainly back when integration was taking place. So I I'm a little, um, not so quick to just excuse a white homeowner who says, well, black families moved in. It's not that I'm racist. It's just that I'm scared my property value is going to drop. So I'm going to therefore sell my property uh, the first second I can. In fact, there's a story in the book told about a black family who moves into what was at that time an all-white part of Shaker and sold by from obviously from a white couple. And the, the the homeowners in that on that street get together and pressure them to the sellers to cancel the sale. And they say they'll buy the house instead because it's not that they don't want to live with someone who's black. It's just that they're worried about their property values, which is, you know, just on its face, like straight up racist. I think we can agree that they're saying that they don't want a black person to move in because they're worried theoretically about their property values. And this whole thing went to court. And ultimately, the black family bought the house and everything was fine. And in fact, at one point, the leader of the opposition says to them, listen, we're willing to let the sale go through if you guarantee us that our property values, that if you absorb any losses, which is a ridiculous thing to say. That's not how housing markets work. Sure. So they moved in. They made friends with the people who lived on either side of them and the rest of the street. And you know their kids had a really great upbringing. And nobody, they didn't panic. And property values were fine. So I don't accept that that I think a lot of stuff gets excused under the guise of, well, I'm just worried about my own self-interest. So as far as the schools today, I do think that parents, white and black parents of high achieving kids, have a right to demand challenging classes and um, top-notch education that Shaker has delivered for so long and that I got in those schools. And there are people who are worried that by collapsing the classes together that and everybody in there, you're not going to be teaching at the same high level. And I think that that is a concern that needs to be taken seriously. And I've seen evidence that it is a problem. And I've seen other places where I think it's going well. And I don't know enough to know to pass judgment on this program. But I do think it's a, a complaint that should be Consider not because of the way you put it, which was, well, even if everything's fine, I just am uncomfortable with this. But because, you know, we ha- there are standards for your kid and you want them to do well. Uh, I also think that people sometimes jump to conclusions about what Im- the impact will be on their kid. Most likely their kid is going to do well because of all sorts of other circumstances and because of where they are. But it's a it's a question that should be asked and the district should pay attention to.
0: So what do you think is next for Shaker Heights? I mean, they did this recent detracking effort in 2020, right? There was a lot going on that year, but it's playing out. Is this going to be another five-year cycle that fades or do you think that this is going to play out as the muscular intervention envisions?
1: Well, first of all, I would not say that these other things faded. There are a lot of initiatives that were put in place earlier that persist to this day. There's a tutoring center. You can get free tutoring in Shaker. There's the student group on race relations which was formed 40 years ago. It's still going at it, having conversations with kids about race. There's a Max Scholars, which is a targeted to black male students about encouraging high achievement through positive peer pressure. I mean, there are a lot of things that are around. There's a program called Bridges, a summer program to prepare um, mostly students of color, to take advanced placement U.S. history in the fall. There are a lot of ideas that have persisted. So, sure, some have come and gone, as should be the case, but there's a lot that's still around. So I, I don't think we should leave listeners with the idea that they're just jumping from thing to thing.
0: No, but, I I was referencing the superintendent who said, well, we have these cycles where things come well, up and then they, well, they his, tend to fade back no, what he was the, the memory.
1: He was more talking about the fact that every so often somebody – Wants to talk about the achievement gap and feels like they've discovered the problem. The Fair idea enough. that that they're like, "Aha, there's a gap," and he's like, "Yeah, we we know there's a gap. Yeah. You know, we we know. You know, that's that's sort of I think what he was talking about. Not so much the initiatives. That said, to answer your actual question about the detracking, I think that's a good question. What's going to happen? The current administration is committed to it. And we'll see if it gets modified over time. We'll see if it just adjusts and if it succeeds. We'll see if it, if it doesn't do very well. well. We'll know. I think the way to judge this is do you, are high achieving kids still feeling challenged and still doing well? And are the scores of lower achievers coming up? And are these, once you get to high school, are these advanced classes becoming more diverse? Is it working? You know, you put every eighth grader into Algebra One, which is normally a ninth grade class, but in Shaker now everybody's taking it in eighth grade. Some of the kids are going to struggle in this, right? But there are going to be kids who never would have been identified for the advanced math track who are now taking Algebra One in eighth grade. And now they're open, it's opened up for them to ultimately get to calculus by their senior year. Are we going to see more? Black kids in calculus, AP calculus in their senior year, that will be one of the many metrics that can be used to judge this.
0: Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Laura Meckler. We'll include a link to Dreamtown, Shaker Heights, and the quest for racial equity in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other people will find the show. You can send us your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malchus.